You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. I was told by a nun, God doesn't want you, you're dirt. My parents were very ashamed when they found out. They phoned the priest. I used to wet the bed at night and every morning the nun would hit me before she grabbed my left ear and dragged me to the wash basins. Those are just three pieces of testimony, three out of hundreds told to the people who investigated what took place in the so-called mother and baby homes and county homes in this country between 1922 and 1998. 56,000 women and girls, the youngest of them just 12 years old, were sent to these institutions because they were unmarried and pregnant. Pregnant, many of them, as a result of rape. 57,000 babies were born. 9,000 of them died as very young children. Where most of them are buried is still largely unknown. Most of the babies were taken from their mothers. They felt like they had no choice but to give them up for fostering or adoption. They never got to say goodbye. Most never saw their children again. These women and girls were marked out, treated cruelly by a state and church which callously judged anyone who dared to defy the strict moral code that they had constructed. We are joined now by two women, Teresa O'Sullivan, who was born in Chewham, and Mary Steed, who was born in Bespra in Cork. They were both adopted as babies. Thank you both very much for agreeing to talk to us on Morning Ireland this morning. And Mary, you've stayed up through the night. You're in the United States to talk to us, and we appreciate that very much. What are your thoughts so far on what you've read from the report? Well, I'm, I'm very disappointed in it, to say the least. Um, it's it's a, a shambolic exercise. It really is. I think that the primary problem with it is trying to foist blame directly on society and away from the state and the religious orders. I think that kind of rings through very clear, as well as in some of the opening remarks that uh, the Taoiseach made to us yesterday during the presentation, and that's, I, I think, disgraceful. It sets the tone, and it sets the narrative, and it appears to me that, once again, survivors truly weren't listened to. Teresa, what are your thoughts on it? My thoughts are that I would certainly agree with some of the content that Mary has said. Um, I think that I have a pain in my heart right now, reflecting back on everything that I have heard yesterday and Mary is right it's we are the experts it's the survivors are the experts in this I think the government is making a a strong attempt I have to say this is my opinion that they are trying and I think together we can certainly do something but the bottom line is in relation to the society we are all society we were all part of it and now we must be part of the resolution. Mary, why do you feel the survivors were not listened to this time around? Well, I think, you know, if you go through, and of course we haven't done a complete deep dive into the report, and there's certainly much that they have admitted was done incorrectly. The deaths, the treatment of children, the treatment of women, that's certainly all there. But then you'll see comments like there, there was no evidence of abuse found. Well, if you've got a death rate of 86% in one year alone at Besboro, that constitutes abuse. Somehow those children died, and it wasn't through, you know, sheer luck of the draw. Um, Also, you see comments uh, like the women weren't forced. What choice did they have? If if you don't have choice, you're forced. That's, That's a forced adoption by definition. 
Um, I also, you know, in the lead off to their recommendations, they start with recommending counseling. Well, obviously, you know, people have been traumatized. There is a great need for counseling. But I think when you start with that, what you're saying is you're, you're first of all acknowledging that people that came out of the institutions or were adopted are damaged. And that sends a, a very negative tone to survivors. Um, so it's these, well, we found this, but no evidence of this statement. It's, it just beggars belief. Teresa, I want to read the paragraph that the Commission concluded on the issue of forced adoptions, and I'll just get your reaction to it. It says that um, many of the former residents and lobby groups have suggested that adoption should be renamed forced adoption. The Commission does not agree. The Commission found very little evidence that children were forcibly taken from their mothers. It accepts that the mothers did not have much choice, but that is not the same as forced adoption. Mothers did have time after the initial placement for adoption to reassess the situation. What do you make of that? Well, I can only talk from my own experience on speaking with my mom. And one of the things from yesterday, as you've said there now, is I honestly don't think that my mom ever knew that after six months she could have come back and she could have retracted her, uh, what she wrote down and what she signed off on. Absolutely no way did moms at that time know about that. And the reason I'm saying that is that six months afterwards, when my mom had left the home in Shum, my mom came back. And this is why I have to hold the accountability of the state and the church to talk to my mom if she was here today and say to her that they had a second opportunity to make sure that we were together. And that did not happen a second time. So if we get it wrong the first time, they got it wrong the second time as well. And this is something that a young girl of 17, 18, and indeed any age, I would honestly say absolutely they did not have the full consent. They did not have a situation where they were fully informed And if we were to be really, really honest and go from the heart of each survivor that has gone through so, so much, there is a natural human right that a baby stays with their mom and their mom stays with their little baby. And every opportunity must be given to make that happen in as best way as possible. That survivor speaking from the heart. We are the experts. Every survivor, every mom, every little baby that has gone through what they have gone through. No government or no state can take the place of that. It's their experience. They know the heartache. We are the experts. We can read about the commission. And to be fair, they have put a huge amount of work into it. But now they need to do more. I'm not interested in evidence-based reports written on paper. I am interested in what they are going to do, how we are going to heal, and we now have an opportunity both in the church and state. This is a golden opportunity to do the right thing. It's our human right, and the biggest thing of all is we were looked upon as second-class citizens. 
they now need to move us into first class because we deserve it. Mary, let me come back to you and this apology today from the Taoiseach. There will be redress as well, although the Commission does not recommend redress for women who entered the mother and baby institutions after 1973. Um, What do you think of the measures that the government will or may introduce? Well, I think, you know, a lot of the recommendations are very solid. And it's exactly as as Teresa said, if... We can set aside the report. That's that's just written opinions and, you know, some evidentiary findings. Um, at the end of the day, it's the action steps, and what are we going to do moving forward? The first is absolute unfettered access to our information, birth certificates, early life records, administrative files. All of that needs to be done. Um, we need to have a much better understanding of GDPR and how that applies to adopted people. Um, I'm not even clear that we need legislation. I mean, right now, there should be nothing that would preclude myself or Roderick O'Gorman walking into the GRO, both of us together, and being able to get our birth certificates, and there would be no difference between one of us or the other. Um, that, that should just be a basic right. So, as Teresa said, to her point, being treated as second-class citizens, that needs to go away. So positive step forward um, with the recommendations. Let's keep that moving. Let's let us, the survivors, take back that narrative and, and then push forward those next steps. Don't let the government do it in a vacuum. You know, listen to us. And Mary, you, you both, both you and Teresa did eventually meet your birth mothers. I mean, but what was growing up without your birth mother, not knowing who you truly were or are? What impact did that have on you? Um, well, for me, I, I grew up questioning, of course. I, I was always questioning. And my adoption was not a secret. I mean, I, I arrived when I was 18 months old. Uh, my adoptive parents got a boy two years later from Besboro who arrived in 64. So I think they used that as an opportunity sort of to explain to us, you know, uh, how we came to them. They never kept it a secret. They invited discussion about it. Uh, And then I fell pregnant myself when I was 17 and was forced to give my daughter up, unfortunately, by my adoptive mother. So, again, that same, she was first-generation Irish uh, stigma and shame followed us across the Atlantic, you know, with our our various roots. (laughs) Um, So that that opened up a lot of additional questions. And um, I never felt like I belonged in the U.S. I I don't feel comfortable unless I'm back in Ireland. I I feel more in my skin. So it it was a very disconcerting growing up. And Teresa, for you, what was the impact of of not growing up with with your birth mother and not knowing who you were truly? I think there's two, two strands that are coming to me right now. And one is, first of all, my adopted family and my relations and friends were absolutely wonderful and continue to be to this day. However, uh, that aside, and that is so, so wonderful, there was always a longing. There's always this question of who am I and where did I come from? How come my birth cert was different to everybody else's? How come there were times I didn't have a birth cert? How come it was 1990? 
so, so many years on that I finally got a birth cert handed to me with my name on it. And how come my birth cert didn't have my natural mum and dad's name on it? Even to this day, I am very, very strong that birth certs for those of us who have them, and certainly for those many, many people who are still looking for them, we need to have a birth cert that says everything about us, that tells me my name and the names of my adopted family, my name, the name of my mum, and if possible, the name of my dad as well. We need to put it all down on paper because then it becomes authentic. Then I know that the longing that I have in my heart, there was always a piece missing. And now we've got church, we've got the state, we've got the wherewithal, we've got the education, we've got the academics. We were in a very strong position to have everybody finding out everything about themselves. And that's really my experience to date. And as well as that, I am not going to stop. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to find out more and more. Well, look, thank you both very much to both of you for talking to us this morning, Teresa O'Sullivan and Mary Steed. Well, President Donald J. Trump leaves office next week and before he goes, he'll go down in history or infamy as the only US president to be impeached twice. Our Washington correspondent, Brian O'Donovan, has been outlining the events of another remarkable day in Congress. It was a surreal, jarring, striking image last night. I was up on Capitol Hill for the impeachment vote and you're struck by this massive security operation that's been put in place. Hundreds of armed National Guard troops gripping rifles in their camouflage uniforms, standing behind these massive metal fences that have been installed all around the Capitol building. All of this, of course, because of last week's storming of the Capitol by Donald Trump's supporters. And that was the cause of the proceedings inside the chamber as well. Democrats in the House of Representatives accusing the president of inciting that riot. The impeachment debate was this quick-fire round of speeches alternating between Democrats and Republicans. Democrats saying that Donald Trump had spent months falsely telling his supporters that the election had been stolen from him. And then in a speech last week, he told them to march on the Capitol, to show strength and to fight to take back their country. Now, many of the speakers last night recalled their own frightening experiences of seeing these rioters breaking into the Capitol building and they told of how they had to flee, they how they had to hide and how they felt under threat. In a moment, we'll hear from Democratic Congressman Jim McGovern. But first, let's hear from the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. We know that the President of the United States incited this insurrection, this armed rebellion against our common country. He must go. He is a clear and present danger to the nation that we all love. I never, ever will forget what I saw when I looked into the eyes of those attackers right in the speaker's lobby there. I saw evil. Our country came under attack, not from a foreign nation, but from, what, but from within. These were not protesters. These were not patriots. These were traitors. These were domestic terrorists, Mr. Speaker. And they were acting under the orders of Donald Trump. So that's what the Democrats were saying. There were 10 Republicans who did cross the floor of the House and vote to impeach their own president. 
But on the other hand, there are Republicans who are still backing President Trump and refusing to walk through gun scanners. Absolutely. And we saw those divisions highlighted last night, divisions within the Republican Party. Ten Republicans jumping ship, breaking ranks and crossing over and siding with Democrats. Now, on the face of it, 10 isn't a huge number. But remember that over the last four years, Republicans have been united in their fence, in their defense of Donald Trump throughout a variety of controversies, including his last impeachment when we didn't see any Republican members of the House breaking ranks. But last night we saw 10 jump ship, go with the Democrats. And it actually made last night's vote the most bipartisan impeachment in history. And it was interesting to listen to the various Republican members of the House explaining their votes and their reasons for why they were voting that way. Some said the president had gone too far. Others were critical of the process and the wording of the article of impeachment. Others were critical of Democrats saying they were just out to get Donald Trump and had been for the last four years. And this was just pure political out to get him and that they would divide the country even further. Now, some Republicans on the other side did deliver these very staunch defences of Donald Trump. In a moment, we're going to hear from one such Republican congressman, Matt Gates. But before that, we're going to hear from the Republican leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy. Now, he didn't vote to impeach, but he was critical of Donald Trump. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. These facts require immediate action by President Trump. Accept his share of responsibility. Quell the brewing unrest. For months, our cities burned, police stations burned, our businesses were shattered, and they said nothing. Or they cheer-led for it, and they fundraised for it, and they allowed it to happen in the greatest country in the world. Now, some have cited... Some have cited the metaphor that the president lit the flame. Well, they lit actual flames, actual fires. And we time expired. There will be order in the house. So a sense there of the passions that are still uh, running high in terms of all of this. President Trump issued a a video statement last night. Uh, We know the Senate, uh, which now takes up this impeachment vote, uh, they're not going to be sitting until after Joe Biden is sworn in uh, next week. So what happens in terms of this impeachment trial, Brian? Yeah, Anya, so as you say, the next step is a trial in the US Senate. But the big question is when that is going to happen. Democrats have been pushing for it to happen immediately. They say, in theory, a Senate could meet this Friday, tomorrow, and that they could start this impeachment trial. However, Republicans have said no. The earliest we're going to start this trial, they say, is Tuesday, January 19th, the day before Joe Biden's inauguration, which would mean that his first few weeks in office will be dominated by Donald Trump and dominated by this impeachment trial. Now, President-elect Biden issued a statement last night saying he hoped that the Senate could find a way to deal with impeachment while also getting on with his appointments, trying to get them approved, tackling urgent issues like the coronavirus virus pandemic and the economic crisis. Now, remember in the Senate, the bar is higher. It would take a two-thirds majority to convict Donald Trump. And then a separate vote could be held to bar him from ever holding office again, which would, of course, rule out a potential run for president in 2024. But that two-thirds majority, that would actually require 17 Republican senators to jump ship and vote with the Democrats. Now, there are reports that the top Republican in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, is actually pleased with the idea of impeachment and that he sees it a way maybe of getting rid of Donald Trump from the party. And it was no doubt 
that that threat looming over him prompted Donald Trump to release a video message last night just after the impeachment vote came in. He actually didn't make any reference to the impeachment in that video, but he did try to distance himself from last week's storming of the Capitol. I unequivocally condemn the violence that we saw last week. Violence and vandalism have absolutely no place in our country and no place in our movement. Making America great again has always been about defending the rule of law, supporting the men and women of law enforcement, and upholding our nation's most sacred traditions and values. Mob violence goes against everything I believe in and everything our movement stands for. No true supporter of mine could ever endorse political violence. President Donald J. Trump in his televised address yesterday. Despite the current limit on how far people can travel from their homes, Garda checkpoints had to be put in place in the Wicklow Mountains over the weekend because of the large numbers who wanted to look at the snow. Wicklow Garda said emergency vehicles would not have been able to access several areas because of illegally parked cars. Valerie Hayes is a spokesperson for Dublin Wicklow Mountain Rescue and she joins us on the line. Valerie, thanks for talking to us this morning. What happened over the weekend? Uh, hi, Rachel. Well, we've been seeing a, a large number of people in the uplands. Um, the car parks and, and roads around the Dublin Mountains in particular have been very busy. And we're also seeing more people in the Wicklow Mountains than, than we'd expect for the population in those areas. Um, that's meaning for us that we're taking uh, longer to get to call-outs. Um, due to COVID, we can't all pile into team vehicles with blue lights and sirens on. So it's much more difficult for us to get through the traffic uh, to get... Um, these call-outs in our, in our private vehicles. Uh, one of my team members said that uh, for a call-out on the weekend that um, it took uh, what would normally take a 15-minute journey took him 45 minutes to, to get there, which is an extra half an hour for someone injured on the mountain uh, to, to, to receive help from us. So it's, it's been very difficult. No doubt people going to the mountains over the weekend said to themselves, oh, there's plenty of space, it's very safe. But from what you're saying, they did cause problems. Yes, definitely. And, and we also find uh, that there's a lot of people parking in front of gates. Admittedly, that's, that's a year-round problem for us. Um, we have keys for all of the gates and that allows us to get equipment um, closer to the, the injured party faster. Um, you know, it, it cuts off kilometres of carrying equipment up. Um, and, and carrying a stretcher back down off the mountain if we can access those forest tracks. Uh, so we would ask people to please not park in front of barriers and not make sure that the road isn't reduced to one lane of traffic all the way into the into the mountains because it really slows down our access um, to the mountains. Mm, of course, in most cases, people shouldn't be parking there at all because the chances are that they live more than five kilometres away. It, of, it, of course, yeah. Particularly with the Wicklow Mountains, we're seeing... You know, many more people in the mountains uh, than live in the area. Um, you know, the, if you, as as the guardy put up on their Facebook page in Wicklow, um, you know, the areas around Glendalough, Lugalaw, Lugnaquilla, Cronwood, you know, they're not densely populated areas, um, and and there really shouldn't be that many people hiking in them. And uh, we would ask people to seriously kind of consider reconsider going into the mountains at this time. It's very difficult for us uh, to safely operate, um, you know, with with COVID to, to safely rescue someone. It's impossible to socially distance on a 
while carrying a stretcher. And uh, it's, you know, you you might be walking within your 5K and you're socially distanced or you're, you're traveling and, or walking just with your family members. But if you get injured, all of a sudden you're in very close contact to at least 12 people, uh, 12 new people. Um, so that's putting you at risk. It's putting us at risk. Um, our team is made up entirely of volunteers. A lot of us are also healthcare workers and it's bringing extra risk then back into the into the healthcare settings when we've been exposed to so many new um, close contacts. It's a fair point. Valerie, thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. Valerie Hayes there of Dublin Wicklow Mountain Rescue. The Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, will publish a bill today to make it an offence to coerce children into crime. The proposed law would mean that anyone who directs a child to commit a crime would be punished as though they committed the crime themselves. The child need not carry out the offence as long as there's proof that they were instructed to do something illegal. Guilty parties could face up to five years in prison. Carl Duquay is a project leader at the Targeted Response to Youth Project in Dublin. It works with teenagers and adults dealing with drug and crime related issues. He spoke to our reporter Amy Nirida about his experience seeing children becoming involved with crime. When I first started Amy we were only employed to engage with 18 plus and we seen fairly quickly that an intervention needed to be made in the generation under because they were the ones standing around the corners looking at the older generation out making easy money and uh, there, there was no positive role models in the area and They've seen these guys making easy money um, and all of a sudden they were getting integrated into the gangs by simply standing around the corners and keeping lookout for the police and stuff like that. We developed this like hierarchy theory that we, we, we identified the people at the top who would obviously be the suppliers and then the people underneath who would distribute. And then we we seen the people at the very bottom, the younger people, that they were the, the runners, as we like to call, that they'd be the ones out delivering the drugs, taking the most risk, collecting them. You'd see young people from anywhere from 14 to 15 out there doing that. Um, we have witnessed, I suppose, young people as young as 14 doing Class A drugs. My own theory around it is that at, when you're at the bottom of that scale and you're taking the most risk by supplying these drugs and collecting them and delivering them, that there's a lot of fear in that. There's a lot of fear of being caught, a lot of fear of losing the supply. And the, the more fear a young person feels, he's going to take more drugs to relieve that fear. Um, and I, I you, you see fairly quickly that it moves from the experimental stage to the problematic stage and all of a sudden the older they get it's into the dependency stage of addiction. This legislation would see the people who are making the orders being held responsible as opposed to the children who are carrying out the deeds for them. Can you see children coming forward and actually acting as a witness for a Gardaí? With the areas I walk in, it's very um, disadvantaged and there's a lot of like stigma towards police and you, you don't talk to police and stuff like that. that they're, they're always the, the bad person that... Um, I can see that being very challenging towards young people actually coming forward. Plus the, the levels of fear and intimidation that these people can cause in the community will increase if that kind of situation did happen. And that was Carl Duquay there with Amy Neerida. For more, I'm joined by Dr Johnny Connolly from the University of Limerick Centre for Crime, Justice and Victim Studies. Johnny, good morning. Good morning. 
You're also the author of Building Community Resilience. Carl talking there about, about young children being induced into crime. Will you talk to us a little bit more about the process of grooming children? Does it happen within the family or outside the family or both? Well, the evidence that, that 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 we have produced through that study, Building Resilience, and through work that has been conducted by my colleagues in the Greentown um, uh, project suggests the strong element of family and kinship involvement where you have fathers basically involving their children in criminal networks. And that compounds the issues that Carl was talking about there in terms of, you know, you know people going forward as witnesses. And also then younger people um, recruiting other young people, um, uh, young people who are connected into these family, but they're, they're associates of the family, connecting other young people into into the networks and grooming them in. So, so that's going to be very challenging. But I'd also say I think it's an impo- it's important legislation because you know it, it's highlighting an often hidden harm that's very damaging, particularly to vulnerable young people in com- in the communities where where particularly the drug trade has most pernicious. Effects and it sanctions a behaviour that that can become normalised, and it tells people, particularly young people, this is not normal. It's wrong and it's criminal, and the, and you know, and the criminal law should have that. You know, it should have that symbolic role, um, but it also should be enforceable, and and that is going to be very challenging. And that um, was highlighted as well by Carl yeah. there at uh, the challenge of of encouraging children who have been induced into crime in this way to come forward and give evidence. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of the assumptions around the criminal justice system, you know, that we might, you know, that we don't live in those situations, we might take for granted, just don't hold. And so while law enforcement, well, then we have to look at this as it goes through the do- through the Oireachtas. I think it'll, we, we sh- we'll really hopefully tease out those different issues. But also we should see, and this is where, where the Greentown project is at the moment, and as it's been rolled out with the interventions in two locations in Dublin and, 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 and elsewhere, is that the law is just one aspect of a sort of a whole holistic or whole system approach to this. So while you need to try and disrupt these criminal networks, you also need to try and support communities, develop community efficacy. You need to also, you know, what what these criminal ne- networks provide young young people is a sort of an anti-social um, opportunity structure. And so we know t- we need to look at pro-social opportunity structures uh, for these young people to help them s- steer away from these networks and to also build up their own capacity and their agency to help them sort of resist and be How more resilient. How are we doing with that, uh, Johnny? Because there was a big well, commitment to the North Dublin inner city uh, during that wave of crime some years ago. Well, the North East Inner City uh, programme is actually going on, going, going quite strong and, and we've had some engagement with, 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 with that. Uh, and, and it is, there is one, one thing that is developing there at the moment, um, and obviously COVID has, has impacted on everything, is a, a new sort of community policing structure has been developed um, within the North East Inner City and that's a model that has emerged from the uh, from the the recommendations of the Commission on the Future of Policing, um, so I think I think this is quite it's it's quite positive if it if it is seen as part of of this sort of more holistic approach. I think you know it'll be important. It's going to be incredibly challenging to you know to to enforce this, and this is not just 
the situation in Ireland. This is elsewhere as well. Every country is dealing with this. But I think it is really important that through through at least this law, we're putting a spotlight on this on on this issue. And so that's that that's a positive thing. How widespread is it within within communities that have been targeted by crime and by gangs? Well, the original Greentown study that was conducted by my colleague uh, uh, Sean Redmond was followed on by a national prevalence study where um, they interviewed around 100 uh, guarded juvenile liaison officers throughout the country and came up with an estimate of around 1,000 children um, throughout the state who are um, you know, vulnerable to this type of grooming and, uh, and, and exposure to this type of criminal networks. And that was based on the workload, on, you know, on, on a sort of a proportion of the workload of juvenile liaison officers. And that's an important piece of work as well in the, in the sense that you don't... You won't get that sort of information from you know from normal statistics, um, and and so that's sort of an, an, another element of it. But that was the sort of estimate they came over that we're talking about around a thousand uh, children and young people. I suspect very difficult to prosecute as well because if a child were to come forward, uh, they've got a target on their head from there on. Yeah, that's the case. I mean, and there's another side of it is that children often look up to people involved in these networks. They they see status, they they see cash, they get sort of psychosocial supports in the sense of feeling wanted, feeling that they're useful. Now, of course, that's a bubble that bursts very quickly um, as, as as they become implicated or they become um, ob- obliged through through drug debt. So um, so yeah, I mean, it's 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 going to be something that'll be very very difficult. To enforce, and I think it, it, what it, what that means is that we need to think of other ways um, of approaching this, and you know, the, the cliche thinking outside of the box. Okay. Um, but, but these children do need support, and they knew the sort of work that Carla is doing is is absolutely invaluable, incredibly difficult and All challenging. Right. But Johnny, that is where we need to go. Thank you very much, Dr. Johnny Connolly, there from the University of Limerick. Now, throughout the programme, we've been hearing from the hospital front lines about the pressure they're under and how important it is for most of us to stay at home. And of course, now there are fines for people who move outside the restrictions. Well, three people who travelled from County Meath to South Dublin for takeaway burgers are amongst the 29 who've been fined since the new measures came in on Monday. Our crime correspondent, Paul Reynolds, has the story. An expensive burger on a long way away, Paul. Yeah, this was a checkpoint at Sean Moore Road in Rings End on you. Uh, the driver of the car that was stopped told the guard that he and the two others had driven in from County Meath to collect burgers from a takeaway restaurant in Dublin 4 in the area. They were they were approximately 80 kilometres from home. Uh, the guard, they find them on the spot. They issued them with a fixed penalty notice uh, and they have uh, 28 days to pay the €100. Euro. But that's one of a number of stories that the guard have uh, found this week. There was a checkpoint in Middleton. Now, these are only in the last four days. There was a checkpoint in Middleton where a woman was stopped and asked to go back home. A short time later, the Gardaí saw her on a beach, which was outside the five-kilometre limit for exercise. She acknowledged she was breaching the COVID regulations, offered no further reasonable excuse. She was fined. Two cyclists were stopped near Carrick in County Galway. They weren't from the same household. There was no social distancing. Uh, They weren't wearing face coverings. They were 19 kilometres from home and in another county. They claimed reasonable excuse of physical exercise, but they were outside the 5K limit and they were fined. Uh, In North County, 
Dublin, the Gardaí saw four people coming out of the back of a gym, which was supposed to be closed. Uh, and then on further examination, they found two others who claimed to be instructors. And they said that they were working from the gym because there was no internet at home to conduct online sessions. All six people there were fined. In Waterford, a man was stopped walking on the street. He said he had been out for food and then went to see friends on the other side of the city. Again, no reasonable excuse for being more than five kilometres from home or for being outside your household without a reasonable excuse. Uh, another €100 euro fine there. And at a checkpoint outside Cork City, a man and a woman uh, not from the same household were stopped in a car. They claimed to be travelling to visit an elderly relative. So the Gardaí finished up the checkpoint and they went on patrol to a local park. And in the car park, they found the same driver. He hadn't, he hadn't gone to see any elderly relative. He had no reasonable excuse and was outside the 5K again for physical exercise. So both he and the woman were fined. So all in all, in the last four days, 29 people have been fined €100 Euro for breaching the, the restrictions, which were only introduced last Monday. Uh, the Gardaí say that fixed payment notices were issued to people because they were outside their homes without a reasonable excuse. But also, uh, a total of 37 people have been fined so far, uh, because as well as the 29, another eight fines were issued for offences that had occurred last week. So even though the regulations were only introduced, or the, the Gardaí decided to change mm-hmm. its policy on Monday, because the offences were committed last week, they were able to issue another eight. Uh, yes, Paul, and y- you know, obviously it's hugely difficult. People want to uh, go out and get exercise. Um, how, in terms of the, the effort that is going into this kind of policing from Gardaí at the moment, what kind of resources are going into it? Yeah, well, it is, it is a big change, and I think people will see the checkpoints all over the country. And the difference here is that uh, you have your patrols, you have your your checkpoints, but you have checkpoints in local areas. People see them in the communities. They're, they're not uh, there's not as many checkpoints on the motorways anymore. We're not we're not seeing as many traffic jams. But they are targeting people who are outside their homes without reasonable excuse, and it's for public health reasons. They say they're acting under under uh, the emergency legislation which has been brought in under the Health Act. The Deputy Commissioner John Toomey has again appealed to people to stay at home. And he says this is to protect frontline workers and make only essential journeys. They are stressing, however, that the travel restrictions don't apply uh, to cases of domestic violence or people who are in fear or at risk of harm or, or are worried about anything. And they are reminding people that the guards are there. Uh, if people need help with their shopping or whatever, uh, ring the guards. They will go down. They will shop for elderly people and they will um, they will do whatever they can. That's what they're saying. But they are very, very strong on this. <clears throat> they have up to now, as we said earlier in the week, uh, been been quite graduated in their approach where they're educating people and encouraging people but at this stage uh, it, it's fair to it's fair to say that most people know about the covid virus and most people should know uh, that you that you shouldn't breach these restrictions and because of that the guardi are now implementing fines uh, almost immediately all right paul thank you for that our crime correspondent paul reynolds Another day, another day of homeschooling, or more accurately, schooling in an unprecedented emergency situation. No one would choose this type of homeschooling for their children. So what was day one like? Ingus Cox has been finding out. It feels slightly odd because I was so sure we would be going back. I was so excited to be going back and seeing who was in my next pod because we were changing them. 11-year-old Jane Maloney from Adair County Limerick is in sixth class. While she was looking forward to returning to school after Christmas, Jane is focusing on the positives. It's kind of nice to be doing the online work sometimes because it means you get your work done shorter and I get to do what I want in the evenings. But would you prefer to be going back to class? 
Well, I think we all would because you get to see your friends and you get to ask the teacher questions when you don't understand something. And it's just not the same sitting at, com- at a computer. While Jane's 10-year-old brother Charlie, who is in fourth class, believes his school day at home is much more efficient. Well, I think it's kind of easier and shorter than normal school. Now it's like two hours of work. Do you feel you're missing out on anything at all by not being physically in the school? Kind of, but we're doing maths, English and Irish every day, but we're not doing like art or SESC or PE. Finn, who's eight and in second class, is the youngest in the family. What he misses most is the loss of the social aspect of being in school. I'm kind of sad not to see my friends. I miss all of them and I miss my teacher as well. Are you looking forward to going back to school into the classroom? Um, yeah. Have you thought about how long that might take? Probably next month. It's not just a different experience for children, but also for their parents. Emer Holden is the mother of Jane, Charlie and Finn. I'm at home anyway and I'm a trained teacher. I haven't taught for some time, but I, I do have a background in education. So I suppose I have a, a slight advantage, even though it's different, trying to teach your own children who are all at different levels and with different abilities. I, I can't imagine how difficult it is for people with young children and who are trying to work. I'm one of the lucky ones who can focus on the kids right now and and doesn't have toddlers or small babies to entertain and and look after at the same time as everything else, you know. There certainly is a certain level of anxiety. There isn't a definite timeline. We don't know how long we're going to be doing this for. The children's dad, my husband Tony, is a frontline worker, so he's in the thick of it in UHL at the moment. So we're acutely aware of just how bad things are. RTE's children's news programme, News Today, is staying on air while schools remain closed. And the RTE Homeschool Hub is back on television on weekday mornings. My name is Cleana Nihison and I am a teacher on RTE's Homeschool Hub as well as a teacher in real life. We cater from first class, but really, I mean, a lot of it is accessible for children who would be in junior and senior infants, which is the class that I have myself, and I know that they find it accessible too. We try to use as much creativity as possible, and we also are very mindful of the situation. So everything that we do involves materials that can be found from around the house or lessons that don't need any materials at all, just pure imagination. And while news of the extended closure of schools post-Christmas came as a blow to Charlie, he's pleased with some of the more weather-dependent benefits. I find it sad because we couldn't go to school and couldn't see our friends, but we do get to go outside when it's not raining. Ten-year-old Charlie Maloney ending that report from Angus Cox and a reminder, you know it is not possible to do remote learning with a primary age child and work from home at the same time. It just cannot be done. Four of the five main Irish retail banks are planning to develop an app-based payment system which would allow bank customers to transfer funds in much the same way as users of apps like Revolut and N26. For more, we're joined by our consumer affairs correspondent Fran McNulty. Fran, who's involved and what are they planning to do? 
Well, the Banking and Payments Federation, Rachel, represents all of the main banks here, and they have uh, made an application to, on behalf of AIB, Bank of Ireland, Permanent TSB, and KBC to the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission. They look at, at competition and if companies come together and amalgamate to provide a service, is it anti-competitive? They made this application on behalf of those banks uh, to establish a, a, a service, a payment card, as you say, similar to Revolut or N26. They're doing this because of the surge in popularity uh, of both of those providers over recent years. Revolut say they have well over a million customers in this country, N26 of something like 150,000 customers. So the banks know that these uh, digital services, these they don't have a physical building. They are an entirely online uh, banking facility. They are surging in popularity because people like them uh, and the banks know that they're effectively eating their lunch and this is them coming back saying, OK, we can provide something which will provide a similar service. Who gets to decide on this and what are the questions they need to ask? Well, they need to look at whether it is anti-competitive and that is the main uh, issue which uh, the CCPC will look at. Uh, They will determine that and banks have said that, look, it's over to the CCPC now, they'll make a decision on it. Uh, But in doing so, they'll also look at the existence of the like of Revolut and N26. Rachel, the reality of the surge in popularity of these services is their ease of use. If you have Revolut, uh, you can simply transfer money. If I owed you €10 this morning, I can simply call your number up on a phone and press send 10 euro it instantly arrives on your phone so effectively in your Revolut account the other incentive for consumers is the cost there's no charge for me transferring that money if I go to an ATM which I can do with my Revolut card there's no charge for um, withdrawals under 200 euro so it's very attractive to people not least young people and in particular in a cashless society uh, which we're being pushed towards constantly and also as a result of the pandemic I don't know about you but I'm not handling cash as often Mm -hmm. and many people aren't either because it's simply safer to tap your card. You don't have to touch the machine, you don't have to handle cash and so therefore over recent months uh, really Revolut have seen quite an increase in the number of customers using their services and that is set to grow. We know that as consumers a we, Central Bank has said we are walking into bank branches less. Now there are a couple of reasons for that. Maybe many banks don't incentivize us to come in. They want us to do our business online. But we are moving towards an online digital presence in terms of our banking. And this is the banks recognizing that, that the older model, actually, they're being overtaken by newer uh, non-Irish operators. Fran, thank you. And to Uganda now, where 18 million people have registered to vote in today's general election. The current president, Yoweri Museveni, 35 years in power, is seeking a sixth term. His main opponent is a former pop star, Bobby Wine. Since he announced his intention of running, he's been arrested on many occasions and he's been wearing a bulletproof vest throughout the campaign. I did not get in this struggle to name the number of times I've been arrested. I'm in this struggle to liberate Uganda. And uh, before that is accomplished, I don't care how many times I'm arrested, harassed, beaten, tear gas to pepper sprayed. I'm keeping my eyes on the prize. Eyes on the prize, candidate Bobby Wine in Uganda. Sally Hayden, freelance journalist, is in Uganda and joins us now. Good morning, Sally. Um, While Museveni is looking for a sixth term, it is Bobby Wine who has captured the public imagination, both within Uganda and internationally. Tell us a little bit about him. 
Yeah, so um, first thing is to say sorry in advance for the noise. I'm actually at the polling station right now with Bobby Wine. He's about to cast his vote. Um, he is a 38-year-old pop star turned politician who is half the age of the current president. He's been in power for 35 years. He says his mission is to remove a dictator, and he's definitely cap- captured the imagination of Ugandans. Um, I don't... In front of me, there are literally hundreds of people have gathered to vote. They've been here since 7 a.m., and now they're cheering. There are also police here wearing black jackets, helmets, carrying guns. There's been a heavy police presence around the city for the last week. The internet was also shut off last night, um, which which the allegations are that this is to stop um, anyone from outside from learning about what's going on in the in the country. But um, but yeah, here here the vote is continuing. Describe some more of the challenges and the security threat to his own life uh, that Bobby Wine has faced during the course of this campaign. So. Yeah, there have been police using live ammunition, using water cannons, tear gas. He's faced um, assassination attempts. There have been people around him have been killed or injured. A lot of his team have also been arrested. Um, and he's actually caught a lonely figure this week because so many of his team are now in prison. But yeah, he's continuing on. On the one hand, uh, if you look at the report card on Museveni, he has, he would be praised for bringing peace and prosperity. He is now being seen as another authoritarian leader. Has he used the cover of COVID to impose very stringent lockdowns and very stringent security? Yeah, he definitely has. Uh, Coronavirus is completely political here and now. It's being used to arrest campaigners to arrest opposition um, candidates and opposition mm-hmm. figures and at the same stage Museveni and his NRM party when they have events they also have large gatherings but of course they don't get in trouble for them so yeah and we're, we're also wondering if we're saying Bobby Wine has been encouraging people to come to the polling stations and stay all day um, to watch their votes being counted he's saying he's saying that they need to stay and monitor the votes and we don't know, again, are the police going to crack down by saying that because of coronavirus restrictions, they shouldn't be there. So people are anticipating potential violence today as well. Sally, when will you have a result? I think it's going to be Saturday, but it's not completely clear at the moment. Um, but we think probably Saturday. OK, Sally, for now in Uganda, thank you, Sally Hayden there. Throughout the programme today, we've been hearing about the situation in hospitals and alongside their increased workload, hospitals have also been giving staff their first COVID vaccine. And in many cases, that's quite a large logistical operation. Joining us on the line is Professor Shane Higgins, who's the master of the National Maternity Hospital in Dublin. Good morning. Good morning, Rachel. You vaccinated everybody or almost everybody over the weekend. How did it go? It went exceptionally well. Um, We have over 1,100 staff here in the hospital, and uh, we received the vaccine last Thursday morning, and we immediately mobilized um, about, I'd say, anywhere between 20 and 40 staff who manned the vaccination clinic over the following three days. 
So we started to vaccinate at uh, lunchtime on Thursday, and we were quickly vaccinating approximately 50 staff members per hour. We had four vaccination stations and people also drawing it up from our pharmacy and anaesthetic department drawing up the vaccine. So between there and Saturday lunchtime, we vaccinated well over 1,100 individuals. Most of those were staff in the hospital. And then we extended the offer and the opportunity to be vaccinated to GPs in our local area. And we're finishing off today with vaccinating our new junior doctors who are starting their um, rotation here. And then we're also going to vaccinate several staff members from the dental hospital, which is just down the road from us here and would also be considered quite a high-risk group. Listening to healthcare staff who've been vaccinated or reading their posts on social media, their sense of gratitude and their sense of relief is palpable. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, on Thursday here, the staff were coming through our vaccination clinic and we had dedicated an entire floor of a building to run this service because we had to maintain the social distancing and, and make sure that everyone was safe during the process. But there was a sense of euphoria. And nobody thought for one second that this was the end of the pandemic, but this is the the beginning of the end as far as our staff are concerned. They can see light at the end of the tunnel, and there was an absolute sense of overwhelming euphoria and gratitude, not just to the hospital for providing it, because we had to get the vaccine from the HSE. So, uh, you know, our uh, thanks indeed to the the likes of Colm Henry, etc., who have managed to get this vaccine and to distribute it to the hospitals as quickly as possible. Were there many people who didn't want to receive the vaccine? Very few, and, and, it's, and it's difficult to know the people who didn't show up. So we have, there, there are groups of people who can't get it. So if you've, if you've had any vaccine within the last 14 days, you can't get it in the current round. If you were a positive, if you were a contact of a positive case, then you have to at least wait a week until after that contact and a negative test. And um, there are some patients who might, or some staff members who might be pregnant and who felt that it wasn't the right time for them to get it. So, but we feel that we vaccinated over 95% of our staff here at the National Maternity Hospital in this first round. Has COVID been much of a challenge for you? Well, it has. I mean, we were just looking at our figures this morning. We have a COVID team here in the hospital that meets three times a week. And since the start of the pandemic, we've had 54 positive patients. Now, these are patients who've had episodes of care whilst positive. So there's probably many more patients who are positive in the community. We've also had 66 staff who have, been, who have tested positive uh, during the course of the pandemic. But I have to say, and I, I, I do want to mention it on air, how, how grateful we are to the patients that attend the National Maternity Hospital who have who have been exceptional in protecting themselves uh, during pregnancy, who've isolated, um, who've isolated themselves and their immediate family bubble. So I think that has had an impact in the number of cases that we've seen. And I think in general, my experience with pregnant patients during the pandemic is that they have really looked after themselves and minimised the risk to themselves and therefore to the staff when they do attend the hospital. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning with that. Professor Shane Higgins there. He's the master of the National Maternity Hospital in Dublin. A dog taken from her home in County Cork last June has been found in England and returned to her owners in Middleton. Ruby's return has made her family very happy. Bernard O'Hearn is with us now. Morning, Bernard. Good morning. This is a great story. Tell us, what happened to Ruby? Well, Ruby was taken from our home here out of her run last June in a six-foot-high fence, which was locked. And we reported it to the Gardaí, and they put it up on their Facebook page. My son and my daughter put it up on their Facebook page. And thanks to everyone that shared it around, then a lady in England spotted Ruby over there when 
pups were being sold and last October. So we were able to contact the Gardaí here then and we were able to get an address for that person in England and give it to the Gardaí over and subsequently when the Gardaí were talking to her after a couple of days she said she would give us back our dog. Wow. Now, how do you know she was stolen? Well, the fence was a six-foot-high steel fence. The gate was locked and the lock was still in place. And... She's had pup since? She had, yes, I. she was in pup a week or two when she was taken. And how is she now? Oh, she's coming back now to good health again, like, you know, there was a friend of ours had her in England for a month because she had to get a rabies and injection and a passport and everything to get her home. So she's home now a couple of weeks with us and she's doing very well, thank you. Now, you had her microchipped, but she didn't have that chip when she was found, no, is that right? That was that was the problem when the police in England went out and scanned her. Her microchip had been removed and she had been rechipped with another chip. But that, apparently that is a common practice in stolen dogs because if you go back to a case here in Wetrosent, how is she? she came I mean, home you, you, here for her own environment. She knew her own place. She was, and like, you look at any of the photographs we had of Ruby. Or ask her, show them to anyone without they ever knowing, and they'd say, you have your own dog. Poor thing, she's been through an awful lot. Bernard, there are many people listening today, and I think, to be fair, this has been going on for some months now, who would be quite worried about their own dogs, about when they, they leave them out. Uh, even and, and most of us aren't away from our homes for very long these days, that our dogs will be stolen. What would well, you say to them? What I would say to anybody now is, if you're going away, keep your dog locked inside. Not to leave them outside in the back at all? No. No. And if we're going into town, if we're going down to town, going shopping or anything now, the dogs are inside, locked inside in the house. We can't <sighs> take that chance anymore. Now, I, the run that Ruby was taken out of, I've had dogs in it for 20 years. I never had a problem. But I just can't take that chance anymore. Once bitten, twice shy. She's staying very quiet this morning. That sounds to me like that's a dog who's already been out for her walk today, yes? Oh, she was out for her walk today, she was. She was. She's lying in the couch now and she's quite happy. And you won't let her out of your sight again, I take it? No. And Bernard, Ruby goes ta- outside from where around that we can keep an eye on her. And I put up a temporary little run here outside in the yard that I can put her into while we're around here. But once we're away, she's inside in the house. Well, listen, I'm glad she's home, glad she's well, glad you're all OK. Bernard O'Hearn, thank you very much for speaking to us this morning on Ruby's return from England. <laughs> You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.